You are listening to Uncommentary. Hey folks, this is Marty. I want to remind you again about my friend Byron at Hearts and Minds Books and encourage you to order from this uh, independent bookstore up in Pennsylvania. Uh, it's heartsandmindsbooks.com, and when you go there, you'll see easily the navigation to uh, request a book or to ask about a book. Uh, they're super helpful. If you'll mention Uncommentary, uh, on some books you can get a discount. They can't discount everything because of the nature of their small operation, but when they can, they do. And I really encourage you to check him out. Uh, he mentioned to me recently that there has been some business come, come his way as a result of the podcast. That makes me like really happy. That's heartsandmindsbooks.com. Uh, you can actually leave a card on file. I do this all the time. And then email him when you want a new book and how you want it shipped to you. And he can handle it uh, right there through your email. And uh, it's really, really encouraging to him. And so I encourage you to check him out. My guest today on Uncommentary is a former missionary to Indonesia, and he's a Bible professor and a Ph.D. in New Testament. Uh, he's written several books, and his latest one is Misreading Scripture with Individualistic Eyes. Um, I have not got a chance to read this book yet. It's on my 2021 list, but he was available early for this conversation, so I wanted to go ahead and get him uh, get him on so you could hear him and potentially get this book for yourself. I'm telling you, this is such an interesting subject. Uh, the contrast between Western cultures and so many Eastern cultures and the distinction between individualism and collectivism and family and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. There's so much to learn in this area and how it, how our being in the West, those of us who are in the West, I should say it that way. Those of us who are in the West uh, don't understand some of the nuances that an Eastern culture or a Middle Eastern culture would readily see in scripture. Uh, these kinds of studies are always fascinating to me. And so, um, I've just recorded this interview. I think you're going to love it. And I hope you'll listen all the way to the very end and then go buy his book and recommend it to everybody. I am like really excited about my guest today. He is a uh, provost and professor of biblical studies at Palm beach Atlantic university. But the way that I know him is he, you co-authored uh, misreading scripture with Western eyes, or was that one all you're doing? I co-authored it. I uh, got a former student who's just a wordsmith and a clever wit, and he dressed it up and made it much better than I would have. That's awesome. Uh, if, you, if you're listening and you have not read Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, I highly uh, recommend that you get it. But we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, his new book, which is also about misreading Scripture, but it's Misreading Scripture with Individualistic Eyes, Patronage, Honor, and Shame in the biblical world. Randy Richards, welcome to Uncommentary. Well, thank you, Marty. It's a pleasure to be invited. I, I'm honored. I think there probably are a lot of people who've at least heard of your first book. Um, it did kind of make the rounds in a certain segment of evangelicalism and opened a lot of eyes and got people to really thinking. Um, but most people probably don't know who you are or anything about your background. Why don't you take a couple of minutes and uh, give a give the bio? Sure. Uh, Marty, I actually have my uh, Ph.D. in New Testament and uh, and my technical expertise. Uh, if this, I hope it, we don't lose listeners from this. My technical <laughs> expertise is actually uh, ancient manuscripts. Oh, wow. And so uh, my degrees in Paul and uh, I was given the opportunity. It's a blessing, really, uh, when 
right after I finished my PhD, my wife and I were appointed as missionaries to a very small little uh, national school out on a remote island in eastern Indonesia. I think they decided they needed to put me as far away from (laughs) other people as they could. When I got there, I realized, wow, these people are amazing and they're doing amazing work. And my primary job is just don't mess it up. And so that's that's the summary of my missionary career is he didn't mess up too many things. And uh, and I just learned so much from my national friends. We were um, we had a two year old and an eight week old when we arrived and we were blessed to be able to stay two terms, eight years. After that, I returned to the U.S. and I taught at a, a couple of Christian universities, which is where I am now. That's fantastic. So um, your new book has to do with uh, with culture and the way culture uh, affects the way that we view the scriptures. And 10 years ago, I would have been completely out of the loop on anything. I would have read the preface to this or the introduction or the table of contents, and I would have thought that you were some kind of Marxist. And um, <laughs> I'm, I'm reasonably certain that that is not the case. Uh, but even so, the book doesn't doesn't come from that. But there is this idea of individualism and collectivism and the way that cult, the way that we relate to each other in our respective cultures does affect our lives and our outlook and even the way that we approach scripture. So can you give kind of just a, a foundational uh, look at the difference between individualistic cultures and collective cultures? I can, Marty. Uh, let me say a couple things. One is the most important things in a culture usually go without being said. Mm-hmm. So like in our American culture, we value youth. We value efficiency. You know, so uh, we value new as a youth minister, I can walk into a room and I can tell my youth, we're going to do something new tonight. And they just get all excited. Right. They don't even know if it's good or not. <laughs> you know, it's just automatically it's great because it's new. In the ancient world, new was bad. Mm. They valued time-honored tradition. It's why our gospel writers keep quoting scripture. Mm. You know, they go back. This is what Isaiah said. This is what Jeremiah said. What they're trying to stress is this is not something new. This is something God has been doing all along. And your your Bible wise listeners might say, wait a minute. You know, Jesus talks about the new covenant. Yes, but the new covenant was 600 years old when he mentions it. (laughs) So even the new covenant isn't new. So um, but those things just go. They're unwritten. They go without being said Mm -hmm. and they influence what's uh, going on. So uh, one of my friends asked me one time. How do I know if I'm an individualist or a collectivist? And I said, would you consider allowing your parents to arrange your marriage? He said, no. I said, you're an individualist. <laughs> um, and you know that's about the simplest definition. Uh, it's all of us in the West. It's really a spectrum, Marty, from individualist over to collectivist, which is just a term for the opposite of individualism. Mm-hmm. And it's a sliding spectrum. The odd thing is when you, there was a, I think it was Brazilian sociologist who looked at this stuff. And when you stretch out all of the different cultures, they reach over and then you have two cultures that are twice that distance away. So if you did a normal spectrum you would have all of the world's cultures on one half and then a gap that you'd have two cultures at the other end individualism and those two cultures are the u.s and the uk so we aren't just individuals we are so 
crazy individualist mm-hmm. that we make everybody else look kind of collectivist. That's by comparison. So it's just in our <laughs> DNA. It's not good or bad. Um, I wouldn't want anyone to think that one is good. And it's like asking which wing of an airplane is more important. Right. You know, it's it's just part of who we are. In the book, we we try to say they're like apple trees and orange trees. You know, they're not better. Or, they're just different. That's uh, that's really helpful because a lot of people uh, they think about the differences and they automatically like assume this kind of self condemnation that they they're so bad because they're not like the people in the Middle East that are more direct directly culturally descended from Christ or the time of Christ. Um, even the time that oh, I, I the, think um, Marty, I, I think we I think the Western Church has been a, re, a very a very much a gift from the Lord. Um, I think we've been a blessing to Christendom. Um, we, there could be a book misreading scripture with Eastern eyes. I just can't write it, Right. but, um, they, you know, they do it too. So it, you know, it, it's not good or bad. It's just a different, it means as individualists, some parts of scripture just come so naturally to us and so easily to us. Um, I like to cite generosity and forgiveness mm. as American Christians. We do so really well with that. It just, it just amazes my Christian friends elsewhere in the world. I remember one of my Japanese friends saying one time, is it, is it really true that American Christians aren't, aren't mad over Pearl Harbor? I said, you know, really, for the most part, no. They said, that's amazing. Wow. I thought, well, I don't know. And they said, don't assume that the other way. And uh, <laughs> that kind of sobered me a little bit. Yeah. So we do generosity and forgiveness so very well. But it means there's other parts that we don't do quite as well, like say hospitality. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, we're just different. Um, so your, your book is broken down into three parts and you deal with social structures of the biblical world and social tools. And then, uh, why does collectivism matter to me? Talk a little bit about the social structures of the biblical world. I think that's probably an area that we, uh, because of what you've already mentioned, our, our natural, our tendencies based on how we're raised and the culture, the cultural artifacts that we carry and don't even know it. Uh, many folks in the West don't even realize that there is a substantial difference. So talk a little bit about what that looked like in the biblical world. What I, I don't know if this list is exhaustive, but I want to say there are at least three elephants in the room. Anytime you're dealing with collectivists, whether that's your neighbor across the street who's from Bangladesh or you're a cross-cultural missionary, if you're dealing with a collectivist, there are three elephants in the room nobody will talk about them but whoo they are enormously influential in everything and what's fascinating is we don't even see them mm. and so when i talk to americans about it they'll say no i don't really think so and if there's a collectivist in the room i'll say what do you think and they'll say oh yeah absolutely <laughs> um so those three not only do we not see them but and i'll talk about them in a minute but marty when we do talk about them, we talk about them in negative terms, mm-hmm. while they would always talk about them in positive terms. So the first one is kinship. We think, well, we don't really talk about that negatively. Well, we have the term nepotism. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the one person you shouldn't hire is a kinsman. And uh, and my collectivist friends say, well, who would be more motivated to do a good job for me than a kinsman? Right. So uh, it's fascinating. That, so kins- kinship. The second one is patronage. Uh, it is already its negative term, and yet it is 
it, it is enormously influential. In fact, we'll talk about it if you'll give me a chance later. It is the way Paul describes the gospel. So it'll be just huge. Oh, wow. And then the last one is brokerage, um, also called mediation. Uh, we call it the middleman, and we want to get rid of it. And they want to find more of them. There was this really wonderful cartoon uh, in the Middle East about the, is an Arab cartoon. And this guy finds a genie, you know, in the lamp. And, and when the genie comes out, the genie says, you know, okay, you just get one wish. I don't know if he was lazy or what. But anyway, you just get one wish. And the guy said, I want the world's best mediator. And the genie tries to talk him into anything else. He said, you know how hard that would be to find a great mediator? Finally, the genie does. And one of the things the mediator does is talk the genie into more wishes. Yeah. <laughs> so they, but it's, it's really fun because there it shows for them that's something that's a fundamental desire. You want a, you want a middleman. So those three elements are always in play. If your church has a, um, Vietnamese congregation that uses your building in the uh, afternoon or something, I guarantee you those three elements are in play in every single conversation. And it's, it's really good to hear that because um, the negative connotations that we give to some of these types of relationships and the words that describe them uh, really do cause us to view people who are in the West, who are from the East as weird or odd or something like that, or we view, we view them negatively, not just the idea that, that, that we assign to those terms. But if, uh, if a Vietnamese person or someone from a collectivist culture, uh, attempts to implement something that's normal to them that we think is a negative, then we assign a negative uh, aspersion to them. Like they tried to do the, they tried to talk me down on this, this, thing I was selling, or they just kept on and kept on and kept on about X or, you know, they wanted to hire their friend or something like that. Um, right. And so it's fun, Marty, that you mentioned that, um, my collectivist friends, my Southeast Asian or my Middle Eastern friends, they would make those same kinds of statements about our values. Right. So, you know, that when you talk to an American individualism, efficiency, all those things are always in play and they're not even aware of it. And they will sometimes make sort of negative comments. But you're right. We do value. We do make negative statements about these mediator. We think, I don't want a mediator. Mm -hmm. and yet Paul says we have one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Social tools. What does that look like in a collectivist culture? Well, this came up. This was fun. When I wrote the first book, I talk about honor and shame. And I, I really thought I didn't do all that great a job with it. So, I mean, it was okay. I didn't say, I don't disagree with what I wrote in the book, but I thought, I think it's a bigger deal than that. Mm -hmm. And so I spent about 10 years thinking about it and researching it and talking to people. And one of the things I noticed was, you know, we say all these cultures have honor, but when I talk about, well, what's honorable, they'd all always talk about different things. And what I realized was honor wasn't a value. Um, it was a tool. It's a way that you, you, uh, maintain and reinforce um, values. Mm. So uh, they would use the honor system to make sure that their culture kept certain values and enforced them and reinforced them. And so honor was the way that they did it. But one culture may value this thing and another culture, you know, a Roman centurion valued certain things and a Galilean farmer valued other things, but they both used honor to reinforce their cultural values so honor is a huge tool for 
uh, maintaining those uh, values. It's amazing. It's, yeah, it's amazing to me that you use the term honor system because uh, the quickest way to lose all your crackers for no money in America is to put a box out on the counter with the honor system of payment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. And then, but, you know, we, it wasn't that long ago we had more of it where, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, you know, they used to say a, a man's word was his bond. Right. You know, a handshake sealed deals. And and actually, even when we say that doesn't work anymore, we still kind of admire it. Yeah, exactly. We want um, it to work. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and that is, uh, well, it'll show up more with the concept of shame. We booger this up completely mm-hmm. because the only way that we use shame in our culture is the misuse of it. Mm. So, Whenever we look at shame in our culture, it's bad and we shouldn't do it. I remember one of my students saying one time, um, it's always wrong to shame someone. I said, really? They said, yes. I said, well, God shames people. And I quoted the verse. And I said, Jesus shames people. And I quoted a couple of verses. I said, Paul shames people. He does it. And they look really uncomfortable. And that's because what we call shame is only the misuse of it. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting, I just go back to my grandmother. And I can still find the proper use of shame. The proper use of shame was to keep people within the boundaries, Mm -hmm. um, to keep to warn people, oh, you're about to cross outside a boundary. Um, So the idea was to draw people back in. It was to protect the boundaries. So I remember first time I heard it, I was, I don't know, my best friend had done something pretty knuckleheaded. And my grandmother said, wow, he has no shame. I said, what do you mean? Of course, you have to defend your friend when you're right, nine years old. Right. Then what do you mean? She said, well, he's shameless. And uh, I said, I don't know what you mean. And she said, have you no shame? And I thought, well, this conversation is just not going well at all. <laughs> because part of shame is you know the proper way to act. Mm. And so someone had shame, meaning they knew the proper way to act. They weren't shameless. Um, when you didn't act the right way, it would suggest, wow, you have no shame. And so um, we take all of that use, which is basically the biblical use, Mm -hmm. all of that use we don't do anymore. All we do is misuse it, which is to push people away. Shame is supposed to draw them back. It's a we turn. That's really interesting. You belong to us, and and we want to make sure that you stay us. And yet shaming today, pet shaming, mind shaming, all that is designed to just push people away. It's not a we turn. That is so incredible. Uh, the probably the the closest that I've come, or the earliest that I can remember considering the biblical concept is uh, a, I don't know two years ago, three years ago, when I read uh, Fleming Rutledge's book, The Crucifixion, and she has a section in there that deals with the shame of the cross. And it was at that point that I realized what the verse in Hebrews is talking about, where it says that Jesus despised the shame uh, that was going on, and, and the the phrase from our vocabulary that immediately came to my mind was this idea of telling our kids, you ought to be ashamed and they have no frame of reference for what that should even mean. We're trying to get them to do something, but they don't even have a frame of reference for what that would even mean to them to change their behavior about. So this is really well, Marty, that, that ashamed word is kind of fun. Um, you know, when you put a in front of a term like all moral, or uh, I don't know what other all words I can think of it. I can't think of any at the moment. But <laughs> in English, you put an an a in front of it to make to negate it. So 
you're ashamed because you just demonstrated you had no shame mm. that you didn't have any sense of the right way to act. Mm. So you acted the wrong way and therefore you're awe shamed. This is Morty Deer. I'm talking to uh, Randy Richards. He's written, co-written a new book called misreading scripture with individualistic eyes. And, uh, this is so enlightening. I can't wait to get to some of the parts where you're actually talking about scripture and we'll be right back after this. Well, you've probably heard me mention already the new Uncommentary Book Club, and I wanted to give you a shorter version of that. I think my original running time was like five minutes. So here's the short of it. Go to uncommentarypodcast.com slash book club. Uncommentarypodcast.com slash book club. No hyphens or underscores in book club. And you'll find all the information that you know uh, that you need in full array. So the short of it is this. Become a patron at patreon.com slash uncommentary at $4 a month. And that qualifies you to join the book club. That's in partnership with hearts and minds books up in Pennsylvania, my buddy Byron. So I want to encourage you to do that. You'll get a new book every month. It's your, uh, you're buying from them. He and I will select these books based on what's coming out and what we believe will be of interest to this audience. Uh, I will post it in Patreon beforehand. So you'll know what to expect. Um, and so you won't go buy extra copies of it. Uh, but this has the, I think this has the, um, potential to be really encouraging. Uh, you guys can hook up via zoom and have, have your own book discussions, all that kind of thing. So, um, uncommentarypodcast.com slash book club for four bucks a month as a patron. You can be, uh, you can join and I encourage you to, uh, to take a look and invite your friends. Uh, Randy, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, maybe more than a couple, but a few minutes ago, uh, that you wanted to come back to patronage, and you mentioned Paul's use of that. Go ahead and uh, head off in that direction. Well, uh, patronage is uh, comes from lopsided friendships. If any of your hearers have remember the old uh, Marlon Brando Godfather movie, um, the Godfather was the patron. Now, it had a lot of crime and negative stuff in it, too. But it's actually that old Italian system of the Godfather is the distant descendant of ancient patronage. Mm. It's this idea that someone who is wealthy and powerful ben- benefits someone else. So I'm going to tell a story if I can. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a baker in Philippi. And I show up at my bakery one more. I'm a baker, by the way, because my dad was a baker. My granddad was a baker. My great granddad. So I show up at the bakery one day and my bakery has burned down. Now, I will assume it's because I have insulted the uh, Fornax, the goddess of bakers. Um, Now, it may also be that I was careless putting away the fire last (laughs) night. But as it may, my bakery is burned down. What am I going to do? I can't borrow money from the bank because my only collateral has burned down. So my neighbor says, I have a friend, and I have to do air quotes when I say the word friend, mm-hmm. because in the ancient world, friend meant lots of things besides what we mean by friend. Um, so a he says, I have a friend. It's this wealthy person. So he says, come with me tomorrow morning, because um, that wealthy person is my friend's patron, and he is what we call the client, the, bene- the, the person who benefits. Mm-hmm. So every morning, he has to go to his patron's house get in line. And then when it's his turn, he expresses any needs he has to his patron and his patron will give him gifts and stuff. So he gets there. He introduces me. I explain my problem. The patron does not have to do anything to help me, nothing, but he feels kind of sorry for me. So he says, okay, I will give you what you need to rebuild your bakery. But at that point, if I accept it, 
then I am in a relationship. Mm -hmm. So that's a key point. Patrons establish relationships. So from that point on, I bake bread for the friends of my patron. And he makes sure I get paid fairly for it. So every morning I'm now in line, you know, to see if my patron needs anything. Well, that gift he gives me, they called charis. And I'll explain that term in a minute. But that term meant a gift that, you know, he didn't have to give me. Mm -hmm. And then in response, if I accept it, I'm expected to give pistis, which is loyalty um, to him. Well, those two terms occur elsewhere, but they never occur together except in patronage. Hmm. So when you talk about charis and pistis together, people say, oh, patron. So we translate that word charis, grace, and the word pistis, faith. So when Paul says, for by grace we have been saved through faith, they would say, wow, God's our patron. Hmm. So that means if I accept it, Marty, every morning I should line up at my father's door and ask what he has need of me today. That's awesome. That is so good. (laughs) Yeah, we we over here in the West, we're not going to be seeing that when we read that verse. (laughs) Uh, We don't. And there's a little bit of a debate. You're aware of it that, you know, does pistis mean faith in your in the in God Mm -hmm. or does it mean loyalty? And I think ancients would say, I don't understand the question. Yeah, (laughs) because obviously, as a baker, I have faith that my patron is going to give me the stuff I need to run my bakery and I'm going to be loyal to it. So they wouldn't really uh, understand. So it's a reciprocal relationship. I'm giving back loyalty and he is benefacting me. And it brings honor to the patron to be a generous benefactor. Oh, that's awesome. Good night. That'll preach. You also mentioned brokerage earlier. I do want to come back to that. That's a, um, a mediator. The idea is this has to be someone that can relate to to both. And they're often described as coming and going. They're like a bridge. They build a relationship between two groups that need to be connected in some way. And then they keep that bridge working. So there's an ancient letter from a Roman, uh, we don't need to know his name. But anyway, he writes to a friend and says, I have a friend who's interested in buying a piece of land that I believe a friend of yours owns. And I, it would be a favor to me if you would help make sure this happens. Well, he's being a mediator. Mm. So he's actually the patron of someone who wants to buy land. And he found out who the patron of the seller was. And then he's mediating uh, between them. And so in the Gospel of John, it describes Jesus as coming and going. I came down from the Father. I'm going back to the Father. I'll come back for you. That is, that's mediation language. Hmm. Mediator, mediators go back and forth. This is what Mordecai does between the Jewish leaders and Esther. It's what Esther does between the Jewish people and the king uh, Artaxerxes. They're mediating and they're going back and forth. So one of the interesting places this shows up there's this term in the New Testament, paraclete, uh, which we have translated often advocate. Mm-hmm. Um, we've messed that up a little bit. It's never the attorney in the courtroom that's called a paracletos. It's the person on the outside who's trying to negotiate a good resolution to this. So the uh, uh, the paraclete is a mediator. And as you know, in John, Jesus says, I'm leaving. Well, that's, you know, that's a panic for them. Oh, no. You know, he's been the one advocating with God for us. What are we going to do? Jesus is leaving. He said, but don't let your hearts be troubled because 
I'm leaving, but I'm sending to you another paraclete, um, one who will be even better. Uh, and so the Holy Spirit is described in John as our mediator. Mm, that's good. So help us um, help us take a step here. Um, I, I think there's probably some pastors who uh, who listen, but I know that there's a lot of folks who are in church. And a lot of them are teaching the Bible to in some uh, you know some form, some format. Um, you mentioned earlier that there's good thing. There's some good cultural uh, components to being in the West: generosity and forgiveness. Um, and there's been kind of a revival of late of hospitality. There's a lot of been books being written. There's a lot of uh, effort being placed into kind of reclaiming that biblical concept and implementing it more uh, in our lives, even here in the West. What are some ways that we can begin to think about recapturing or borrowing, if you will, or at least learning some of the collectivist ways of viewing scripture? Because in the West, we've been taught that collectivism is a bad thing. It's always associated with communism or Marxism or socialism. And it's always, you know, they're trying to get our stuff or something like that. Or, or you know, sure. you're going to you're going to lose your personality or something like that. You're going to be you know just sucked into the mob or something. Right. I had not thought of, I had not thought of it that way. But the ideal picture, actually, of collectivism is family. Mm. Um Family is a collective unit. So uh, let me tell another story. Uh, I'd gone to visit my mom. I had to fly in to go visit. My sister, who lives closer, drove in to visit. And so uh, I got up early the next morning. I realized there is no coffee in this house. That is a catastrophe. <laughs> so, And I'm up early. I know there's a you know, 7-Eleven down the road. So I look around. My sister's keys are on the counter. I know she would be furious if I woke her up at that, you know, what she'd consider an ungodly hour right. um, to ask if I could borrow the car. She's my sister. I know she won't mind. So I borrow the car, get coffee. I bring her son back. When she gets up later, she's grateful. Well, I did that because we're family. I know she wouldn't mind. Um, one day I was in Indonesia. We were out in a village near on the island near Borneo. And I get up one morning with and my wife is in the kitchen. I walk into the living room and all our furniture is gone. I said, uh, our furniture is gone. So I go back in the kitchen. I say, honey, uh, our furniture is gone. She said, yeah, I noticed that. I, I noticed said, okay. that. <laughs> um, I said, do you know where our furniture is gone? She says, no idea. So I come back at lunch. I said, our furniture is still gone. She said, yeah, yeah it is. So about three in the afternoon, this pickup truck pulls up and it's piled up with our furniture and these people all hop out and they start unloading our furniture and they put it back in the living room and then they start to leave. And I should have just waved goodbye, but you know, I'm an American. <laughs> and so I, I chased after them. I said, uh, where has my furniture been today? And they said, oh, it's been up in this village up in the mountains. And I said, okay, uh, why has my furniture been there? And they said, well, there is a wedding and we didn't have enough furniture and so we came down to uh, borrow it, but you were asleep and we knew you wouldn't mind. And so they just borrowed it. That's awesome. Well, what happened was the church was treating me like family, mm. like family. Yeah. And so that's what I would say. This is not communism. This is being family. And when we collect an offering, it is it's the family fund. Um, you know, everybody contributes a little bit to help out family. That is amazing. It's so counter uh, how we think about things. Now, in, I guess in, 
in some areas, it's probably a little more natural. If you go to, you know, borrow somebody's shovel and they're not home, you just grab it and you're going to bring it back, that kind of thing. But they're a little more family oriented. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And we if we strove to even in in the context of a, a local neighborhood. So, you know, I live in a place where there's, you know, 13 houses on my street. And uh, my neighbor has told me numerous times, hey, if you ever need anything, just ask and you can borrow it. And I've told him the same thing. But we always lock our stuff up. So it's behind a locked garage door or it's, you know, behind a locked, you know, crawl space door. So it's not the same thing. We, we're still protecting it through our individualism, even though we're trying to loan it through some, you know, obligation to be gentle, you know, loving our neighbor or something like that. But it's still there's kind of a step removed from that feeling of I have an open heart, open mind, you know, what's mine is available to you and you don't even have to ask. I'm reminded of a, I think I'm going to get this right. It's been a long time since I read the book, but I read a biography of Rich Mullins, the singer songwriter that was a believer. And he was living with some people and uh, the man's wife began to notice that all of their coffee mugs had disappeared and she was getting really upset because she was pretty sure that Rich was taking them and wasn't bringing them back. And so I think one morning she gets up and all the mugs are gone. She's got nothing to put her coffee in. And sure enough, they go outside and all of the coffee mugs from the house are in the floorboard of Rich Mullins pickup truck. And he just didn't think to ask, should, you know, could he borrow one? It was in the cabinet. He was living there. He considered them family. And so he just used them and then just absentmindedly forgot to bring them back in. But we tend to have a, you know, we would say that that's irresponsible. We would not say that he feels so at home that he doesn't even have to ask to borrow something. And man, that's just, I think that's a big mental hurdle for many of us to get over. It's hard to be church. That's what I tell my young ministers that I train. It's a challenge to create the body of Christ out of a room full of individualists. Mm. It's easy to create a forgiving body of Christ out of a room full of Americans, and it's easy to create, you know, but, you know, there, there's challenges with every uh, cultural area. Mm. The book is Misreading Scripture with Individualistic Eyes, Patronage, Honor, and Shame in the Biblical World. If you go looking for it, the cover's not going to say Randy Richards. It's going to say E. Randolph Richards and Richard James. This is from IVP Academic, and it is, I believe it's available now. Is that right? Correct. Excellent. Wherever you buy books, but specifically try to order it from Hearts and Minds books before you order from anybody else. And do you have a website or anything? Do you pontificate on Twitter or any of those kind of things? Oh, my goodness. I have a blog, RandolphRichards.com, and I am like the world's worst blogger. But there (laughs) is some content there. Okay. All right. Well, until the next book comes out and we chat again, uh, Randy Richards, thanks so much for being with me today. Marty, I'm honored. Thank you. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Uncommentary Pod. Please rate and review. And whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, And as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com on your Facebook page or if you tweet the link or retweet the the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, 
Uh, Sobadeo Gloria. This is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast. Mm-hmm.